We are in part five of our infinite series looking at eight of the greatest stories forever told. And uh, if you brought your Bible, go ahead and open to 1 Kings chapter 17. If you don't know where 1 Kings is, there's no shame in, in consulting your table of context. Uh, but it, it's just about halfway through the Old Testament. And this will actually be our last session in this series in the Old Testament. Next week, we jump ahead to the New Testament and we look at the story of Peter walking on water. But today we, we finish up uh, our look at the Old Testament with the story of Elijah. Thank you very much, Robert. Very much appreciate that. So here in 1 Kings 17, we're, we're going to dive in. we got a lot to cover, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time setting it up. But in 1 Kings uh, chapter 17, we first meet this man named Elijah. And there's some, some major themes that we see throughout Elijah's life. We see the themes of boldness. The themes of holiness, the, the theme of standing up for God. We see the theme of, of miracles. There are seven miracles that God uses Elijah to perform that are just mind-blowing, supernatural things. We, we see the importance of making a decision for God. How many of you this morning would say, hey, I would call, qualify myself, I'd count myself as a decisive person. I make decisions quickly and clearly. A few of us, if, if you're still wondering, I'm not sure if that's me or if that's not me, you're probably not a decisive person. Uh, but what I want to do with this text today is I want to bring all of us to the point of making a decision. Because I believe that's what God is doing Right here in 1 Kings chapter 17 and actually into chapter 18, God is bringing his people to the point of a decision. Like I said, we first find Elijah here in 1 Kings chapter 17. Starting at verse 1, it says this. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, Ahab is the king, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except... At my word. At this point in time, we don't know a lot about this guy, Elijah. We know he's from Tishbe. That's real helpful. That tells us a lot. Uh, but that was a joke. Uh, so that's all right. Be serious. No, we don't know a lot about him. He just kind of explodes onto the scene. He comes out of nowhere. Comes from this town that's unheard of. Pretty much anywhere else in scripture. Tishbe doesn't really pop up. It doesn't really have any significance. And yet Elijah comes from this little nowhere town. And he stands in front of the king. And he doesn't just stand in front of the king and introduce himself. He says, oh, by the way, I just prayed. And God is shutting off the rain. It's not going to rain for a few years. He doesn't give him a date. He doesn't say when it's going to turn back on. He just said, at this point, at my word, the rain has stopped. Now, Israel was an agricultural-based economy. They had to have rain to raise their crops. In the New Testament, it says that, that God makes the sun shine on the righteous and the unrighteous, and he makes the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And I always grew up thinking that like the sunshine was like God's blessing, and the rain falling was like the destruction and the bad things. Like I grew up in Seattle. We didn't like rain. We got a lot of it. So the sun shone, that was God. But that wasn't what he was saying at all. When he's saying the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, the rain was a blessing of God. If it didn't rain, there was a problem. Stuff was going to get shut down. And so this guy, Elijah, shows up out of nowhere, and he says, By the way, king, the God who I serve, hinting, not the God that you serve, he's going to stop it from raining for the next few years. He has such a direct line to heaven that he can turn off God's faucet. 
Now, Elijah, his name in Hebrew is actually literally Eliyahu. And Eliyahu means the Lord is my God. Or we could insert Yahweh is my God. So Elijah's name is very bold. It's very clear. It's very direct. There's no confusion that you know exactly who he is the moment you meet him. Your God might be the sex God. Your God might be the agricultural God. Your God might be the business God. You might worship this God or that God or these gods. But for me and my house, my God is the Lord. Eliyahu. My God is the Lord. He says, hello, my name is my God, is Yahweh. And Yahweh is shutting down the rain. We don't know much about where he came from, but we know very much about what he did and what he said. The Bible gives us a ton of insight into him. I'd encourage you today, this week, go back and read 1 Kings 17. See the miracles that God uses him to do in this chapter. But we're going to skip ahead for the sake of our time today to chapter 18 and verse 1. It says, after a long time in the third year. So as soon as Elijah appeared before Ahab, said it's not going to rain, it didn't rain. And so after a long time had passed, we are now in the third year. In fact, in the New Testament, we find out that it wasn't just three years, it was three and a half years from the time where Elijah first appeared before Ahab to the time where rain would fall. So after a long time, in the third year, he again is going to appear. He again is going to go and talk to Ahab. Sometimes uh, we make the mistake of thinking that we have a quick fix God. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that, that God is going to take care of everything immediately, that, that all we have to do is talk to God, is pray one time, and everything turns around, that we're never going to go through anything challenging, we're never going to go through anything difficult. God's going to come in and rescue us and fix things. And believe me, God is going to come in and rescue us. God is going to come in and, and fight for his people. God is going to bless his people. But it doesn't always happen immediately. Israel, God's chosen people is now three and a half years into a drought. And this is not a drought like sometimes we might experience. We haven't had any drought around here lately. It has been raining and raining and raining and raining and raining. Our backyard is a swamp. I cannot let my dog out in the backyard without him coming in stinking like ungodly things. Uh, it is just not good what's going on in our backyard right now. Uh, but they didn't, this wasn't just a drought where they were getting 10 or 20 inches of rain a year. This was completely shut down. And they're three and a half years into this process. These were God's people, God's possession, and yet he let them experience this discomfort for a very long time. Just like with Daniel's story last week, we can learn some things about obedience from Elijah's story. I think there's a ton of great things about obeying God. But ultimately, the story, the point of the story, the point of reading the Bible in general is not to learn about Elijah, and it's not even so much to learn about us. The ultimate point is to learn who our God is. What is our God like? What is his nature? What is his character? How does he work? And we can learn a lot about God through this story. We, we can learn a lot about God through other people. We learn about God through circumstances. We learn about God through the leading and the speaking of his Holy Spirit in our lives. But the primary way that we learn about God is through his word. And so we turn to his word to find out who our God really is. Elijah is a man just like us. And I believe we can learn a lot through his story today. But what we really discover is what God's like. And God's not a man like us. God is, God is different. He is other. He is separate. So again, in verse 1, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab. 
Let's talk about this guy named Ahab. Ahab is one of those names that just kind of sounds like an evil name. His wife's name is Jezebel. That really sounds like an evil name. We just associate it with some awful things. Uh, The Bible says that Ahab did more wicked, more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any king before him. He was the most wicked king to this point in Israel's history. He had an even more wicked wife behind every wicked man. Just kidding. Uh, That's not true. Uh, But in this case, it was. She was a very, very wicked lady. uh, And he was very wicked himself. It says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. This is good news. You've never been so excited to get rain as you are when it's been three and a half years since you got it. You are dancing in the rain when it shows up. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Of all the things we could talk about with Ahab, or about with Elijah, how God used him to multiply a widow's widow's food supply so that she would not starve to death, about how God used him to actually bring a young boy back to life, about how God performs this great miracle on Mount Carmel that we're going to get to later on in chapter 18 today. The thing that probably defines Elijah more than anything is simply this. When God spoke, Elijah responded. When God spoke, Elijah stepped up. And he responded. In verse 1, it says, the word of the Lord came. In verse 2, it says, so Elijah went. The word of the Lord came, so Elijah went. God spoke, Elijah stepped up. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the story of another prophet named Jonah. And when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, Jonah went the other way. And here we see the, the opposite, the antithesis of Jonah. We see a prophet that as soon as God speaks, Elijah says, yes, Lord, I'm going. So Elijah immediately responds, To God, I wonder, when God's word comes to you, do you go? I wonder this morning, when God's word tells you to speak, do you speak? I wonder this morning, when God's word tells you to talk about Jesus to somebody, do you talk about Jesus? When God's word, when the word of the Lord comes and tells you to give, do you give? When the word of the Lord comes and tells you to apologize, do you apologize? When the voice of God comes and tells you to repent, Do you repent? Because God showed mightily in Elijah's life simply because of this cycle that God would speak and Elijah would respond. And God would speak and Elijah would respond. If you're wondering, how come I don't really hear God's voice in my life? I can almost guarantee you it's because the last time God spoke, you didn't respond. And sometimes when God goes silent, he's simply waiting for us to respond to the last thing he asked us to do. So if you're wondering, how come in the Old Testament you'd see God speak in such mighty ways and so directly to people's hearts, and yet I feel like I haven't heard God's voice in years, I would tell you to go back to the last thing that God said. What's the last thing God asked you to do? What's the last thing God put in front of you? And go back and do that, and maybe you feel like, hey, I already did it. Go back and do it again, and do it again, and do it again, and do it again, until God speaks again. But when God spoke, Elijah responded i wonder about the relationship the rhythm of your relationship with god do you have the same rhythm that elijah had really this this whole story is about a broken relationship between god up in heaven and his people here on earth god had a design he had a plan he had a perfect will for his people and they have broken this fellowship they have severed this relationship with him and yet there's one man that God can trust to stand in the gap. There's one man that God knows that I speak to him, and he will show up. He will do what I ask. He will speak for me, and that man is Elijah. Elijah had been on the run. 
He'd been hiding out. Elijah had had a bounty on his head. Jezebel wanted Elijah dead. So Elijah shows up in chapter 17 in front of the king and says, God's going to quit sending the rain. And then he disappears for three and a half years. He's gone. He vanishes. They didn't even know if he was still alive. And yet here he is again appearing before Ahab three and a half years later. So God brings us to a showdown of sorts. So we're going to see next. It says, now the famine was severe in Samaria. Verse 2. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. The famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and with water. In some senses, Obadiah had a tougher job than Elijah. I know the message today is about Elijah, but we're going to park on Obadiah for just a second. Obadiah was in the center of evil. He was in the capital, this wicked king, this wicked queen. He was serving them, but he was serving God. And so uh, he, he begins to run this kind of underground railroad to save the prophets. He begins to step up and do like Corey Ten Boom did or, or like Schindler had done back in World War II. He begins to rescue those who are otherwise going to be put to death. So Obadiah is faithful in the midst of, of very dangerous circumstances. If Obadiah was ever found out, he would have very likely, in fact, pretty much absolutely been put to death himself. So I don't want to leave him out of the story because maybe some of us in the kingdom of God are going to find more identity with Obadiah than we do with Elijah. Maybe God's not going to call you to stand on a stage and preach. Maybe God's not going to call you to a public ministry like God called Elijah to. Maybe God's going to call you to some faithfulness behind the scenes. Maybe the moms in this room can identify with Obadiah. Maybe you're going to have just as much to do with building the kingdom of God. You'll never stand on a stage. or Maybe you will. I'm not saying moms can't, but maybe you never will. Maybe you'll never have that opportunity. Maybe that's not the calling that God places on your life. Maybe there's a businessman here, and God has not called you to be a missionary. God has not called you to be a worship leader, but he's called you to faithfully and obediently serve him in the midst of your business. Sometimes Obadiahs get overlooked. We don't see Obadiah nearly as famous as we see Elijah. His reputation does not follow. And yet God used Obadiah in a massive way. He saved a hundred lives. What an incredible legacy that Obadiah left behind. Don't look down on the calling God has for you. If your calling doesn't necessarily look like Elijah's, if your calling doesn't necessarily look like Daniel's, if your calling doesn't necessarily look like somebody next to you, you don't feel like, well, God doesn't love me or God doesn't have something for me. Because Obadiah was simply a servant in the palace. And God used him in a massive and mighty way. we got to make sure and remember not to look down on the Obadiahs. So there's been a severe famine three and a half years. Crops are dying off if they're not dead already. Livestock are beginning to die if they're not dead already. And Obadiah and, Elijah and Ahab have split the territory in half to see... If there's rain anywhere, Ahab sends Obadiah out uh, and says, hey, you go this way. I'm going to go that way. We got to find water somewhere. We got to find something somewhere in this kingdom so that we can survive. And as Obadiah goes out, he bumps into the most wanted man in Israel. He bumps into Elijah. Going down to verse 16, it says, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, 
is that you, you troubler of Israel? So Obadiah and Elijah bump into each other. Elijah says, I need to see Ahab. Where's the king? I need to go to your boss because I got a message for him from God. And Obadiah says, you sure about this? Because you got a habit of disappearing. Last time you showed up in front of the king, you vanished. And so if I go and say, hey, I saw Elijah and I didn't put you to death, uh, I might end up dying because I saw you. So are you really going to come through on this? And Elijah says, as surely as the Lord lives, I will appear in front of Ahab today. So Obadiah goes and finds Ahab and arranges the meeting. And here it happens in verse 17. And, and Ahab greets him and he says, is that you, O troubler of Israel? What an awesome greeting. Not you, is that, not is that you, O man of God. Not is that you, O one who has a direct line to the Lord. Not even, is that you, easy E? Like, no greeting, no comfort. He says, is that you, O troubler of Israel? What had Elijah done? Elijah had simply done what God asked him to do. And in Ahab's eyes, he had become the troubler of Israel. It begins to get personal here. Write this down. Transformation and trouble often go hand in hand. God had called Elijah to bring transformation to Israel. But transformation and trouble oftentimes go hand in hand. He had sent him on a mission to bring Israel to repentance. They had strayed from the one true and living God, but in order for the transformation to take place, some trouble had to be made. Is that you, a troubler of Israel? Ahab says. This isn't the first time that Ahab or that Elijah had been called a name. One time Elijah went to visit a woman who he'd been ministering to and her son had passed away. And when she sees Elijah, she says, did you come here to remind me of my sins? Every time Elijah turns around, somebody's putting him down. Every time Elijah turns around, somebody is misunderstanding him. But you've got to understand this. If you aren't willing to be misunderstood by people, you'll never really be used by God. If you are unwilling to be misunderstood by others, you will never really be used by God. See, because if all you make your decisions based on is how do other people respond. You're constantly going to be doing this before you make a decision, and you're going to decide, hey, is this popular? Do other people believe in this? Are other people behind this? And you're going to allow other people to dictate your future. But if you are sold out to the calling of God in your life, you're going to obey him boldly and immediately and fully, regardless of the response of others, regardless of the pushback, regardless of the way that you may get misunderstood, regardless of the names that you may be called in the process. They might call you a hypocrite. They might call you a bigot. They might call you this. They might call you that. They might call you a troubler of your nation, of your neighborhood, of your school, of your workplace. Are you willing to be misunderstood by others so that you can be used by God. Elijah was willing to be misunderstood. Verse 18, he has a response. He says, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. This could get interesting. Ahab has the power to kill Elijah. And now Elijah is getting smart with Ahab. Not he didn't lead with a joke. He didn't set some background music for his sermon to soften the blow. Elijah gets straight to the point. He's direct and clear. Why? Because there was an urgency. Because there was a need. There was a dilemma in the land. And they could not procrastinate. They could not wait. They could not stall. Things had to get fixed, and they had to get fixed clearly. Why? God had appointed this meeting so that as soon as this meeting was over, God could send rain. People 
rain. Animals were dying. You know, and, and when there's a drought like that, three and a half years without food, the poor people were probably beginning to die. Lives were on the line. Elijah didn't have time to mess around. He had to be clear and direct, and he had to get to the point. And so he goes directly at Ahab and says, it's your fault that this is happening. You are the one who's the trouble of Israel. Isn't it interesting how we like to blame God for the problems and adversity and trouble in our world, but we like to take credit for humanity when things go great? When somebody comes up with an invention, we glorify Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or whoever it might be, and say, wow, look how far man has come. Look at how brilliant we are. Look at what we can do. But when stuff goes bad, point the finger. God, how could you let this happen? How could you do this to us? This is exactly what's going on with Ahab. When things were going good, he wasn't pointing the finger to God. He wasn't giving God the glory and the praise. When Israel was successful and prosperous, when there was plenty, he wasn't pointing back to God and saying, God did this. But as soon as things go bad, it's God's fault. And we so oftentimes do the same thing. So Elijah goes on in verse 17. He says, you have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. But you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands. And follow the Baals. The Baals are, are fertility gods. Baal himself was the agricultural god, but there was a kind of a whole set of, uh, of other gods, of many gods that came with him. It was a polytheistic mentality. And so the Baals were those that the people of Canaan worshipped before the Israelites moved in. While the Israelites were still in Egypt, there was a group there called the Canaanites. And the Canaanites worshipped all these false gods. And so God delivers them out of Egypt. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. He brings them in to the promised land. And these are the gods that were worshipped there in Israel before they got there. So Elijah calls Ahab out and sets up a challenge. Verse 19, he says, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. Why Mount Carmel? There's a ton of mountains in Israel. There's a ton of places that they could go. What was the significance of Mount Carmel? Mount Carmel was the center of Baal worship. Mount Carmel was the place where the sacrifices were made to Baal. Mount Carmel was the place that, that all of the false god worship happened. It was the very center there in Israel. And so God ain't scared. He does not. He's not. He loves to stack the odds against himself. He loves to say, hey, I'll have one prophet. You can have 850, and I'll even give you home field advantage. We'll do it at your place. We're not going to go to the temple. We're not going to go to the church. We're not going to go to my place. We're not going to go to the house of Elijah, someplace where my presence is already there. I'm going to go ahead and give you home field advantage. We're going to go to your center, to the place where your worship happens, and I'm going to show you how strong I really am. Aren't you, God, aren't you glad you have a God who's good under pressure? A God who isn't intimidated, who's not scared. A God who doesn't back down from a challenge or a fight. Verse 19, Elijah says, Summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat, who eat at Jezebel's table. Elijah is either really hooked up with God or he's crazy. Because he just stacked the odds against him. 850 to 1. Either Elijah knows something that nobody else in Israel knows or he's nuts. There's no in-between, right? He's either got a death wish, or he's a genius. It's one or the two. There is no middle ground here. But how awesome is it that God stacks the odds like this? How awesome is it that, that God says, if there was any way that humans could do it, I'm not going to get the glory, so I'm going to have to stack the odds so bad against me that there's no way you can ever deny that it was me who did this. 
One against 850. If God wanted to, he could have had Elijah go rescue those 100 prophets who were hiding out in the caves and brought them in and kind of tilted the odds back in his favor a little bit. But God didn't want the odds in his favor. God wanted the 850 to 1. He wanted to go on the road and give Baal home field advantage. He wanted to demonstrate how strong he really could be. He says, all I need is one. I will send my boy. I will send Eliyahu, my God is the Lord. And he says, when you get there, I'm going to show off. I'm going to show my strength. I'm going to show how powerful I really am. I don't want to do it in a situation that seems fair and reasonable. It needs to be unfair and unreasonable so that everybody knows I am the one who did this. Verse 20, Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, and here's our key verse for the whole day. Elijah goes before the people and says this. You need to underline this in your Bible. You need to etch this into your heart. This is a question we all need to ask ourselves. He says this. Remember, these are God's people Elijah is addressing. This is the nation of Israel. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. People said nothing. What's really going on here? You see, the people had not completely turned their backs on God, as you might think. This, this was not a nation who had said, okay, we are no longer a nation that serves God. We are a, nurse, a nation who serves Baal. We are going to get into Baal worship, and that's all we're all about. A lot of times we think of this in, in terms of black and white. That's not what's going on here at all. They still considered themselves the people of God. They just thought, I can still serve God, and I can add a little bit of Baal. See, when they knew that God was good enough and strong enough to rescue them from Egypt, they knew that God was good enough and strong enough to bring them to the promised land, but now they got to the promised land, now they got to learn to farm. Now they got to take care of themselves. And there are these other people who live here, and they seem to think that this God can send the rain. They seem to think that that God can make the crops grow. They seem to think that that God can bring fertility. So maybe we're going to continue to serve God and believe in him, but maybe we can worship these other gods a little bit too and just make sure that we cover our bases. Because, yeah, God's good enough to get us out of Egypt, but maybe he doesn't know how to make crops grow. Maybe God doesn't know how to send rain. What if God can't do those things? Let's make sure we have a God who can. So Elijah confronts the people of God, the people who considered themselves the Israelites, God's chosen people, the people who, if you would have asked, who is your God, the first thing out of their mouth would have been Yahweh. He confronts those people and he says, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long are you going to play games with them? How long are you going to think that you can have him and something else? How long? How long? See, The Israelites were supposed to be monotheists. The people of Canaan had multiple gods. The people of Egypt had multiple gods. But God says, Hebrew Israel, the Lord is one. Might seem a little intolerant. Might seem a little offensive. How can you say that you're the only God? Well, he can say he's the only God because he's the only God. And when you're the only God, you can say you're the only God. And he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You're not going to mess around with other gods. You're not going to worship other idols. You're not going to bow before anyone but me. One God. So Elijah is confronting them, telling them to make a decision. He says, effectively, your indecision, your wavering between two opinions is an insult to God. Frankly, God's not going to have it. 
It's like when some schmuck is dating a girl, and he tells the girl, I like you. You're pretty awesome. I just think we should be able to see other people, too. I think we should keep our options open. I'm not saying I don't want to see you. I'm not saying I don't want to go out with you. I just think we should see other people as well. Now, if that girl has any self-respect, she has a brain in her head, she says, you can have as many options as you want, but I'm not one of them. I am off the table. This is what God says to Israel. He said, you can have as many options as you want. If you want to serve Baal, then serve him. But you're not serving him and serving me. That option is off the table. you got to choose. you got to make a decision. You can't play around. You can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it too. God says, if you want me, then have me. But you're going to have all of me or you're going to have none of me. There is no in between. He says, if you want options, I'm not one of them. There's only one way that you can have me. You want to get with me? You want to serve me? You want to stand for me? You want to follow me? I'm not requiring that you be perfect. I'm not requiring that you get it right all the time. I'm not requiring that you never mess up. I will have grace. I will cover it. I'll even send a sacrifice to cover your sins for you. I'm not requiring you get it right every day, but here's what I am requiring. You be wholehearted. I can't have half your heart. You can make mistakes. You can get it wrong. You can trip up. You can fall. I'm okay with all that, but I'm not okay with you serving anybody else but me. I want your whole heart. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you straddle the fence? How long will you have one foot in the world and one foot in the church? How long will you waver between the opinion of grace, which says you're forgiven, and the opinion of condemnation, which says that you need to be ashamed? How long? How long? You see, God speaks. And when he does, it's not an opinion. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. It means when he speaks, what he says is certain, and it is irrevocable. He knew there were two options, two opinions going on in the land, and he said it's time for it to end. There's God's way, and there's the world's way. you got to make a choice. So Elijah knew that the people were fickle, just like us, that we would waver, that we would lean from one way to the other, that it frustrates the heart of God when we do. God says, how long? Will you take into question what I can do for you? How long will you doubt me? How long will you think that I am not enough? How long? In English, we have what we call idioms, figures of speech that, that are words that don't literally mean what they sound like they mean. My favorite example of an idiom uh, is, how do you like them apples? Because I love the word film, Goodwill Hunting. And in Goodwill Hunting, he goes up to him in his great Boston accent, and he says, you like apples? Well, I got a number. How do you like them apples? One of the greatest lines in movie history. It's great. Well, if you don't know anything about the phrase and somebody says, I got her number, how do you like them apples? You're like, what does her phone number have to do with apples? I have no clue what this means. Okay. Well, in Hebrew, there's an idiom being used here. There's a figure of speech. When he says, how long will you waver between two opinions? What it literally means in the Hebrew is how long will you limp between two branches? That's the phrase that Elijah is using. How long will you limp between two branches? So you get this picture of this tree that has its root system in God. It's, it's flourishing. It's growing. Israel is this tree that God has planted, and it's beginning to flourish. And there's a strong branch. There's a branch that is firm. There's a branch that will sustain. But then there's this, this twig. There's this flimsy branch. There's this branch that, that, that can't really hold you, that can't really sustain you, that can't really take care of you, that can't really provide for you. 
How long will you deliberate? How long will you have one foot on the firm foundation of God and one foot on this flimsy twig that isn't going to hold you? How long will you straddle the fence? So they add to God. They add Baal worship. They add Asherah worship. They add the worship of these other gods. They're not abandoning God. They're not turning their back on him, or at least they don't think they are. They think, hey, I can still worship God. I can still honor him. I can still keep the Sabbath. I can still do all these things. I just want to make sure I've got my bases covered. I want to make sure that, that I spread my weight onto some other branches. But what they don't realize is that the one branch that they were on first is the only branch they'll ever need. The one branch that they had, the branch of God, is the branch that will hold them, that will, that will allow them to have everything that they could ever be interested in. God says, this is not Ryan's steakhouse. You don't get to pick some of this and some of that and a little of this and a little of that. You have got to choose. You've got to come to a decision. Am I God or am I not? Back in 2008, a girl came to visit me from Florida named Melody. And this girl named Melody had been interested in me for a little while, kind of made some hints, had kind of opened some doors, and I was ignorant and silly and missed them and uh, missed my chance. And, and so she came out here, and I didn't know it, but she had made a decision in her heart. She said, okay, I'm going to come visit one more time. If he doesn't make a move, if he doesn't try to initiate a relationship, if he doesn't start to pursue me, I'm moving on. I'm done. He either wants me or he doesn't. So I had no idea about this. Thank God I am really, really, really late, but not too late. Waited till the very last night she was in town at like midnight to initiate a conversation. I waited till the very last minute, but I got in just under the gun. Uh, and today I'm married, and she's the mother of my child, and I love her, and I'm so blessed that she's in my life. But Melody came with the attitude that you're either going to have me or you're not. I'm not going to hang out here and allow you to pursue other options. I'm not going to hang out here and allow you to decide what is it that you want, for you to decide how you feel about me. I'm not doing that anymore. You've had plenty of time to make up your mind. Make up your mind. Thankfully, I made up my mind. God's calling us, his people, to make up our freaking minds. Is he enough? Is he all that you need? Is he the one who can sustain you? Is he the one that can cover you? Is he the one who can provide for you? Or not? Because we get all these opinions that come our way, all these other voices, all these other ideas, and we get distracted and we forget that he's absolutely enough. We're limping around, hopping from thought to thought, from branch to branch, from idea to idea. In one moment, God is trustworthy, but at the first sign of trouble, the world is about to end. One minute, God is great, and you're in church service, and man, he's awesome, and I felt his presence. I teared up a little bit during worship. I had some Holy Spirit chill bumps. God's amazing. The next minute, you go home, and you see something on the news, and the world is over. And we do this thing over and over again where our feelings tell us that something is wrong, where circumstances tell us that something is wrong, and we immediately check out and forget that the God who brought us this far is the God who will take us to the end. The God who's watched out for us to this point is the God who's going to protect us going forward. We forget. So God says, how long are you going to jump back and forth between my voice and what you feel? How long? How long? I don't want to belabor this illustration with the branches, but, but one more thing just to hopefully help this drive, drive it home. Uh, God's ways 
are higher. So if God's ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, then God's branch is probably a little higher on the tree. And so God calls us to a high place, and the branch is firm, and it's strong, and it's secure, but sometimes we look down. And we begin to think, well, what happens if I fall from this? What happens if this doesn't work? What happens if this branch caves under me? And so we say, you know what? There's a branch down there that looks a little closer to the ground. If I fall from here, I'm not going to fall as far. If I fall from here, I'm not going to hurt as bad. If I fall from here, maybe I can catch myself. And so we bring ourselves lower thinking that we're protecting ourselves. But what we're really doing is we're missing out on God's best. Because God's called us to a higher place. How long will we limp between two branches? How long? So the real decision facing God's people today is the same decision facing God's people 3,000 years ago, and that is this. Will you serve God only? Will you serve him only? Not will you serve God, because I think this room probably has almost 100% of people in this room who would say, I want to serve God. I like to serve God. I think serving God is a good thing. Maybe not 100%, but the vast majority of us would say, you know what? I want to serve God. The question is not, will you serve God? The question is, will you serve God only? Or will you allow your heart to be mixed? Will you allow your heart to be divided? Will you allow something else to creep in that you want to serve? He says, I want to streamline your point of view. Christ must be enough. You hear this message and you think I'm talking to the person who's got a drug addiction or the person you know who, who's had this massive moral failure or the person you know who, whose life is obviously falling apart because of some sinful decisions. You're not hearing me correct. He was speaking to the people of God. And I believe I am speaking to the people of God today. Maybe there's some people in here who don't know Jesus. And if you don't, I want to offer you that opportunity in just a few minutes. But most of us in this room know Jesus. And yet most of us in this room, if we were real honest with ourselves, we would say, you know what? I serve God and I believe in God and I worship God, but I put a little trust over here in money. I serve God and I worship God on Sundays, but I'm not sure if he can take care of me at my job on Mondays, so I'm going to worship the business God on Monday. I serve God on Sunday, on Wednesday. I serve God in the mornings, but I'm not sure that serving God is really all that pleasing and pleasant. So Friday night when I'm at the club, I'm going to serve the sex God. And so we take up these little other gods that we think are going to allow us to have something that our God can't give us. He's going to give us more pleasure. He's going to, that, this God is going to give me more, more success. This God is going to bless me more. This God is going to take care of me more. This God is going to protect me. The God of dishonesty is going to keep me from, from being exposed. The God of, of, of this is going to protect me from that. And we take up all these other gods instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to serve God only. No matter the cost, no matter the risk, no matter what happens, I'm trusting that he's the only God I need. And I don't like being this in your face with people. This isn't my natural style. I want to be the encouraging guy. I want to uplift you. I want you to leave here feeling better than you came. But I believe that God has called me today to put his people to it. How long will you think it's okay for you to serve him half-heartedly? 
How long will you think it's okay for you to give him just a little bit or protect a little bit over here? How long will you think it's okay to serve the God of drugs? How long will you think it's okay to serve the God of pornography? How long will you think it's okay for you to see, serve the God of lying to your, your spouse? How long will you think it's okay for you to serve this God or that God? Young person, how long will you think it's okay to serve the God of popularity? How long is it going to be okay for you to serve the God of acceptance by the people around you? How long? If it sounds like I'm angry today, it's not because I'm, that I'm angry at you. If it sounds like I'm angry today, it's because I'm angry that God's people are missing out on God's best. Because God's got so much better for us than what we're walking in. He's got so much more blessing and so much more peace and so much more favor and so much more power and so much more protection and so much more health. And yet we continue to chase after all these little gods, all these little idols we raise up for ourselves. And God is sitting in heaven saying, how long is it going to take before you just dive in head first and go all in and see what I can really do in your life? How long? How long? we got to get to the end of the story, moving ahead to verse 22. Then Elijah said to him, we're going to read through just pretty much the rest of it from here, but I want to make sure you see the end because the end is awesome. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 400 prophets, 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. In the Bible, fire is, is a sign of divine favor. It's oftentimes also a sign of, of judgment of God. Here, it's a sign of God's validity. It's going to prove that God really is who he says he is. So then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls. Choose Michael Jordan, choose Scottie Pippen, choose Phil Jackson, whichever one you want. And put it first. Got to keep you with me, right? Keep you engaged. Prepare it first since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. They danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. I love Elijah. Elijah is sarcastic. This is like the greatest sarcasm in all the Bible right here. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and he must be awakened. I love this. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until the blood flowed. And when I first read this as a kid, I thought that was so barbaric, so, so crazy that they would do this. And yet here we have in our generation, we have cutting, we have eating disorders, we have people who are destroying themselves at the altar of a lie from the devil, just like they did back then. We haven't come so far. We're not as evolved as we like to tell ourselves we are. we got a long way to go sometimes. Verse 29, midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah, Eliyahu, my God is the Lord, said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name should be Israel. He's not just stacking rocks. 
He's repairing the identity of the people. He's putting the altar back to the place that it was supposed to be. He's grabbing one stone for each tribe. He's saying, this is who you are. This is who God called you to be. I'm going to remind you of the people that God has created you to be. He's restoring their identity. He's bringing them back to a recognition, recognition of who they are. We're almost there. Fire's about to fall from heaven. Spoiler alert. God's about to win. Spoiler alert. I hate to ruin it for you. That's how it goes down. With his stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jugs with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again. And they did it again. Do it a third time. He ordered. They did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Remember, they are in the middle of a drought. Water is the most precious commodity there is. And Elijah, through the the leading of God, is saying, we can waste that which is most precious. We can squander that which you think you can put your trust in and your faith in. The thing that you think is going to provide for you. I'm going to pour it out right now in front of your eyes. Because we serve a God who provides greater than this. Because we serve a God who's bigger than this. And yes, he was stacking the odds against him even more. He was wetting the altar. He was wetting the wood. He was wetting the bull. So that when the fire came, it had to be some intense fire. You ever try to light a campfire with some wet wood? Good luck. Miserable. You will hate yourself with some wet wood. He's saying, my God's so strong that he can even light a campfire in the middle of the rain. That's the God that we serve. Verse 35, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. Key word in this next prayer, in this next word right here, so key. He says, answer me so. Answer me so. These people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. I challenge you this week in your prayers, begin to make an answer me so. See, Elijah didn't say, answer me so that I will be spared, so that I will be safe. He didn't say, answer me so that you can send rain and the people can have food. That's a good prayer. It's a good request. He didn't make it about them. He made it about him. He said, answer me so people can see how great you are. God, I need you to heal me from this cancer so that everybody can know that the God that I serve is a God who's bigger than disease. God, I need you to provide me with a new job so everybody out there can know that my God is Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides. Answer me so. Begin to put that word into your prayers this week. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. Also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate. That means on their faces. And they cried, the Lord, he is God. Elijah, the Lord is my God. Now they're all saying, the Lord is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone run away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink. There is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. He went up and looked. There's nothing there. He said, seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, seven is the number of of completion in scripture. The seventh time, the servant reported a a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. 
So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain came on Ahab, and he rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. What an awesome story. What a powerful story. God's provision with the fire, God's provision with the rain, God beating all the odds, stacking all the odds against him. One of my favorite stories in all of scripture. But the question today, person of God, is this. How long will you waver? How long? How long will you trust in that habit that you know God's been calling you to lay down? How long will you trust in that lie that you know the enemy has been telling you? How long will you trust in that relationship that you know God has called you not to have? How long will you trust in that job that God's told you I've got something better? How long will you trust in something other than him? How long? How long? We got to quit wavering. We got to go all in and trust him completely. You know, at the heart of this story, we don't just have the story of a prophet being used by God. We have story of a prophet who is a shadow of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus goes up on a mountain. We call it the transfiguration. And as he goes up on that mountain, two people from the Old Testament meet him there. Moses, who we talked about a few weeks ago, and Elijah. And they meet him on this mountain, and God transfigures him in front of their eyes, and they begin to see Jesus in a new way. The glory of God begins to shine through him openly and publicly in that moment, in that transfiguration. And Elijah was there for it. And so we see Elijah as this, as this type, as this shadow of Jesus. Elijah had the water wet three times. Jesus spent three days in the grave. The odds beginning to stack against him. God called Elijah to rise up to stand for righteousness, for purity, for holiness in the midst of the land. God called Jesus to stand up and be righteousness and purity and holiness and to give it to us. When Elijah came and the fire came down, they slaughtered the prophets of Baal and the blood of sinners ran down the mountain. But when Jesus came, Jesus died on a mountain and the blood of the Holy One ran down so that you and I could be free, could be saved, could be cleansed. It's an incredible, incredible God that we serve. And that God, the God who raises the dead, the God who died for our sins, the God who loves you so much, the God who's in heaven desiring what's best for you, the God who sent his son to die for you, that God would ask you today, how long will you lip between two branches? At what point in time will you say, my heart is yours? I give you everything. Take it all. Take it all. You're all that I need. When are we ready to do that? Well, I think today is the day. I think today is the day that I'm going all in. Today is the day that I'm not wavering anymore. Today is the day that I'm giving my heart completely to him this morning on the way here. I just prayed and I prayed and I prayed. Our team this morning, we got in there and we prayed. We didn't pray anything about our service. We just prayed, God, we want to be yours. We want you to have all of us. If nothing else happens today, God, start with us. If you're ready to jump on that, if you're ready to say, God, my heart is yours, I'm not going to waver anymore. In just a second, we're going to pray. But I'm going to ask you not just to slip up your hand. I want you to stand. And when we do that, I want you to stand. I want you to lift your hands to heaven and begin to tell him whatever it is that you've been wavering on, whatever it is you've been putting faith in that's not him, whatever it is that you know he's asked you to leave behind and you haven't left behind, I want you to tell him. I want you to give it to him this morning, and we're going to go all in. We're going to be his. We're going to ask him to take it all, and then we're going to worship. So let's bow our heads close.